The reflections you're about to listen to on this episode of But the Podcast were recorded on Sunday, March 15th, 2020 in New Orleans, Louisiana. Well, hello, everyone. Yeah, we're all hunkered down here in the beginnings of uh, mandated seclusion, I guess. I, maybe we can call it seclusion in the face of a pandemic. And how are you reacting to that? Um, pandemic kind of can rhyme with panic. Um, it can also rhyme with scenic. Um, so take some time during this time of sequestering yourself and think about uh, how life might be different after all this is over. And for a lot of people, it's really kind of scary. Um, I know financially, um, I mean, we may have to really seriously think about how we're going to help each other and uh, be there with and for each other after all this is said and done. So we don't have any excuses. And we don't have any excuses to to, uh, try to take care of each other. And some people will refute that saying, no, I got my own, you know, let everybody else get their own. And you know what? That's the old rugged individualist uh, macho um, way of dealing with reality. Then go ahead and deal with it like that. But um, many of the rest of us will uh, learn how to have a society and... We will learn how to be um, uh, better at identifying our boundaries, but also then being responsible and accountable to uh, look next door and say, you know, what can I do for my neighbor? So welcome to the Butt Podcast. That's B-U-T parentheses T parentheses. I'm BJ. And I welcome you to this sixth episode well, I'm going to be talking about something I think is pretty uh, applicable, shall we say. So I'll be right back. I want to reflect a little bit on the Greek myth of Narcissus this morning for us and um, tell you a few stories which I think are metaphorically applicable to our social cultural condition today. And this is to create space so that we can listen and try to find the place where this metaphor does impact us. And actually not even try to find it, but just be open to the place that this metaphor, this story that I'm going to tell you, or at least describe for you, um, and how it might impact you. So the Greek myth of Narcissus is a story about a beautiful boy who's so enchanted by his own reflection in the surface of a lake, uh, where he's been banished by um, the main god of the story, 
because he was actually so beautiful that he was um, not available, was too, was too self-consumed with his own beauty that he wasn't really available to anyone else. And, and, and all the, uh, th- those who were attracted to him uh, felt shunned and, and, and even kind of a little afraid to approach him because of his, his beauty. So one day he's walking by this, this lake and he looks and in the stillness of the lake notices his own reflection and in his gaze he looks forever and sort of falls into a trance and then falls into the water and drowns. And that's, that's the end of the story. So what does the story say? What's, what's the story suggesting? You know, the physical drowning is one thing. You know, psychologically, the Greeks were very interested in the impact of stories on the minds of their young people. And, and even now, I would say, on our old people. The physical drowning is, is one thing, but an infinite gaze uh, into the staring at myself. You know, this is where the the capturing of the word the word narcissism comes from it's an infinite um staring at oneself and and with i would say almost magnetic uh positive and negative charges to that relationship that one can never release oneself from narcissism is sort of an inherent uh suffering that a person feels stuck to themselves in a way that they can't release themselves. It's a problem of, of uh, you know, I think when you say, um, I think when I was a kid, you know, when you hear someone say that person's stuck up, they're stuck on themselves. It means they really can't see anybody else's opinion or anybody else's uh, point of view and doesn't, and doesn't really care to. So, I think this story is pointing at something a little different than just the physical falling in and drowning. So in the infinite gaze of staring into something that never fulfills its promise, you know, it's kind of like the staring, what is that? And that it in in the process of staring, there's also a constant staring and that was a, a text message that came through I wasn't re- didn't realize I was going to get messages so I'm turning my uh, ringer down but this staring sort of reinforces itself in that there's a like the promise of fulfillment something in the staring is actually going to eventually take place there's going to be some resolution to this longing is what the Greek myth is teaching us. Um, Like the Greek myth, our myth today suggests to us that there is fulfillment in an infinitely attractive potential for happiness. Life, liberty, and pursuit of happiness, right? You know, the three inalienable rights. Life, your existence, your life. Liberty, your freedom. Not everybody can say that, though, of that they have freedom. And the pursuit of happiness, you know, the pursuit of whatever that is, the carrot dangling in front of you, the infinite carrot. I know people that, you know, it's like our 
social the story is once you work for 40 years for somebody or 30 years for somebody then you uh, are retired you get to pursue your happiness in retirement in fulfilling your your uh, longing for what boats and more money and uh, the infinite uh, promise that all that stuff is going to bring you ah the freedom of just having stuff yeah. So you can tell I'm a little pessimistic <laughs> about that. Um, and it's like the infinite reflection in the pond, if you ask me. The infinite reflection in the pond produces more longing, which produces the idea that I'm not quite happy yet. And the outstanding promise is eventually that will open a final door that I'll walk through and there will be my happiness. So, like the infinite reflection in the pond, I think there's another problem today. The infinite reflection in the pond reflected in the screen of our digital device, our phone, our uh, whatever it is we're looking at or staring at. Some people can't release themselves from the screen. Some people can't uh, they put it in their pocket or their purse and they know it's there and just like the interruption I had a minute ago um, was the uh, someone telling me something about the virus you know here's something you need to know about the virus I'm like you know a reaction constantly reacting to what other people say is important is a distraction. The constant being on for waiting for the next thing to pop across your screen conditions you to be a reactive kind of person so that you don't ever really get to choose your future fate or your future ideas. If you're led around by the screen... So, like the infinite reflection in the pond, the screen reflects infinity. Never, ever going to be finally enough to get to the final thing that you're looking for in the screen. This is a problem. But what other messages are we getting to not do that? We're not. We're told. You know, keep looking at it. Keep looking at everything besides yourself. Confuse yourself with your gaze into the screen. It may be video games. It may be that when you get any spare time, you're right back in there to your playing your video games or you're looking at your console or whatever that might be. Confuse yourself is the message with your gaze into the screen. Get lost in it. This is a psychological malfunctioning of the human being who only seeks to get more and more and is never happy. Right? It's always more. This is the plight of our world. This is the plight of everyone who's been put to sleep in a culture that promises 
to deliver infinite number of lottery tickets purchased died having never won. The promises to deliver are never fulfilled. My parents bought an Atari uh, video game system back in the 1970s. Um, maybe some of you played that Atari system. It was one of the first ones. My favorite game was Space Invaders. I remember playing uh, when we first got it, like for hours and hours. I'd lose and lose and lose. <laughs> but I loved it. Just the game itself was so much fun. Dying disgracefully over and over again. It was fun. I actually enjoyed failing. <laughs> I started to learn, however, that the game had a pattern. I slowly learned the timing of each alien drip as the aliens would slowly descend down and down and down, closer and closer, and finally killing me. I finally learned how to see the screen, how it would move, and figured out how to time everything. I don't know how I figured this out. It was because of experience, really. And no one could teach me how to do it. I had to learn how to do it by watching. So these aliens could no more get me with their alien drips. I'd figured it out. I learned. And suddenly... I felt, I felt myself really playing with a feeling of competency. I became a Space Invaders pro. Never got a medal, however, and never won a prize. But it was the prize of feeling the satisfaction of having beat the game. I could play for hours and never die. I could play for hours and never die. Suddenly, I realized that I was never going to die. Ah, oh, I could feel this change in myself. I could defeat these aliens with my almost eyes closed. I was perfect at it. I knew the pattern. It was a feeling. I'd learned it. And I figured out how to beat them infinitely. I would never die. How would the game end? How would I end the game? By committing suicide? Really? I felt my ego rail against that idea. <laughs> I might have done that a few times. But I figured out another way to end the game. I remember my sister sitting there watching me, completely curious about how I was able to win over and over again, never die. I let her take the reins. The game was over pretty quickly. Two sides of the same coin. Losing infinitely or winning infinitely produce a feeling of futility. 
whatever game it is you're playing, to never get enough or to feel, really feel deep happiness in the center of oneself without being confused with the accomplishing of that by one's actions and just realizing the sense of playing the game itself is what the game is about. It's not about winning or losing. This is the difference between someone who is aware and someone who's unaware. This is a difference between someone who understands and enjoys the now and can be in the moment of, of the present instead of worrying about what happened in the past, the past failures, or concerning oneself with accomplishing the victory and the feeling of competence that that will maybe bring in the end. There was a certain satisfaction playing Space Invaders. But then again, it was just a game. It never produced the kind of happiness I thought it would when I finally beat it. So nothing external to us can ever produce the kind of satisfaction of just being and having that feeling of connected connection to the now. The happiness really that we're looking for never ever manifests when we're lost in the gaze of this infinite pond or this game. The pond of the external screen of our choosing today, I think, is is a good symbol for this. The game may be fun for a while, but then again, it's only a game. And it can provide some enjoyment. But then happiness, I would say, fulfillment and joy combined can never be achieved. They're not something to achieve. The way Narcissus shows up on our planet today is in the screen that is contained in every pocket and every purse. It's the umbilical feeling of our attachment to it and what we project it promises to do for us. Until we can interrupt this constant nag of the eternal, eternal, uh, uh, infinite external screen, whatever form it takes, your phone, your tablet, your computer screen, your TV. Gosh, Netflix is overwhelming now as far as the amount of movies that we can watch in any one given time and just an overwhelmed feeling. Until we can deal with this problem, we'll forever be completely unconscious and incapable of real human-to-human relationships. The screen is interrupting us. The screen is interfering. It's the screen us interrupt us <laughs> that we're all victims of. And it started happening in 1995. I mean, I think that's really when the computer screen really became part of our now not no longer just passively watching the screen as in TV shows. Now we can participate with it. Now it was, you got mail. Or, 
Where do you want to go today? The screen is interfering. My ideas are my attempt to lay out an approach, a balance, an approach to this problem of what I call the screenification of our lives. We've been screenified. And, you know, if you disagree with me, that's okay. There are some positives, positives to, to the screen. But if you're, if you don't understand what I'm talking about and you just defy and, and just say that you want to keep going with this kind of thing, you know, the infinite, you know, promise of winning the lottery and you just refuse to be happy now, that's okay. If you just want that to be the case. I invite you to find another, something else that works for you. And that will work in today's world. That works actually globally um, because we do have a global uh, society and can make sense uh, in a system that seems to have lost its moral, ethical, and community sense. It's lost its footing. And as we try to gain our own sense of balance in this, it's helpful to, to approach our screens with a little healthy suspicion and a little healthy skepticism. And not just buy them hook, line, and sinker as I'm sitting here talking into my phone, getting ready to put this on my podcast. <laughs> Is it possible? What I imagine can happen is that eventually one day we'll find um, the only cure for our mental illness from which we're all suffering in some form is that we can finally replace the screen with a human face. Another reflection is warranted here. I'm a Henry David Thoreau fan, and as kind of a conclusion to this podcast, I'd like us to imagine this for a moment. Henry David Thoreau was a, call him a transcendental philosopher back in the 19th century. He wrote the book called Walden, um, Reflections uh, Where He Went, uh, Left Society, basically the the hustle and bustle of society and went out and lived in a cabin for a couple of years. And I actually went to Walden in like 1991, saw the little spot where his cabin was on this beautiful little place. And, you know, there's folklore about his, um, what he actually did, but he wrote this beautiful book called Walden. And and there is a um, a volume that I got some years after I read the first book um, the annotated version of Walden, just great, full of little notes and memories about little trips he might have, side trips he might have took while he was, uh, might, he might have taken while he was living uh, in, on the pond and doing all these sort of deep reflections. 
But he tells the story of one time being uh, asked to come and meet with some town leaders of a small little community, I guess, somewhere around Concord, New Hampshire. And he went, or Massachusetts, excuse me, Concord, Massachusetts. And he went to meet with these, he called them select men. And the select men from the community were the farmers and the people that were running the town, and et cetera, et cetera. And I don't know how long it was after he met with them, but he wrote a reflection, and I'm going to try to recall it as best I can. But the story is, has to do with his reflection on what he saw. And he said, Here was the cider mill, and here was the orchard. And there was the graveyard where these people who lived here came and lived and died. Much as like the woodchucks that inhabit the cider mill still. And the cider mill obviously was uh, no longer functioning. It was almost as as if a memory of history had come and gone. And he says further... And these people lived here. They raised their families. They, you know, did the work of the farming for the the orchard as much as it required. But who were they, he says? Who were these people? Much like these select men who uh, came and spoke with me earlier. He said... Life seems to be vain. And then he said, but if I could know, he says this profound profound thing, which I think is cool. Um, But if I could know deep down and, and have known that someone here might have written a verse of poetry or prose as if a messenger of the gods would have been that person's delivery messenger as a messenger from the gods would have come to deliver a verse of poetry he says that I might think not that these people had lived here in vain and so Thoreau was commenting on the fact that he saw a lack of I would say imagination he saw a lack even then in the I think this was in the 1830s. Um, About 30 years after the Grimm's fairy tales were compiled, 20 years after the Grimm's fairy tales were compiled in Germany, 1812, 1830-some, and that people uh, in in this period of history were, were undergoing a sort of economic transformation where the... Uh, the insides were becoming less and less a part of life as they might have been at one time previous. And I reflect on that in the in an earlier podcast with the with the the storytellers, uh, the robustness of the storyteller uh, with Steve Hodak and the imagination the the stories were in their bodies. But so Thoreau's comments, you know, echo that in a way. 
that around the world, people were being so influenced by economics and the, the quest for more, the happiness. And who knows, really, who knows what happened to this orchard? Who knows what happened to it? And um, it had bec- had been displaced, maybe, you know, or some other orchard, uh, some other company had drawn the workers away from this and, and they abandoned uh, the orchard, the uh, cider mill, and um, and now the tombstones just line the ground, and as if life was never fulfilling in uh, in some way, and he was not impressed with the, the select men that he that he talks about. He he says I met with the select men, but he wasn't impressed. He wasn't impressed. And so somehow we live in a society, I think, that also does not nurture that creative place. We are so busy chasing and we think STEM is the, is the newest, greatest thing to chase. So thankfully, some people are putting the A back in. So not, it's, it's not just STEM, it's STEAM. And without STEAM, the engine cannot go forward. Um, without recess without art, without investing in character and the development of the character aspect with a robust uh, program. Uh, you know, It's not really even a program. It's related to art. That's what I keep saying. Um, and I won't toot my horn too loud here, but um, there is a possibility that I explored and, and saw and, and experienced as working, even as young as in kindergarten, um, that I would love to talk with someone about on a, on a more of a corporate executive uh, level. Because I have a plan for bringing character and making character part of uh, elementary education in a way that emulates, I think, uh, some models from early, early history and um, captures um, the creativity of the, the ideas behind drama and art and uh, the functioning aspect of the artistic side of every person and how that can be part of character development and what's needed in our society. Art is just not painting pretty pictures. Art is an expressive connection that one has with oneself where there is no shame and there is no blame, there's no guilt. And what comes out is whatever the beautiful is in that person. And so many of us have lost that as adults. It's something that um, is desperately needed in our lives. We are in recovery. We are in crisis mode with our relationships. We don't know how to have good relationships. Uh, there are people who fight against it simply because they think money is the final solution to everything. And they're part of the select men here, as I guess uh, Thoreau would remind us. Uh, nothing creative or inspiring ever comes out of their mouths. They're about consuming, consuming, consuming. And before you know it, they'll consume so much, uh, everything just goes away. <laughs> I'm sorry. Character is really important in all of this. 
So thank you for listening to But the Podcast. I'm BJ. Until next time.